Good morning, everybody. Whew, it is a good, good Sunday. Um, real quick, just to add on to the beach day, that is a uh, BYOE event. Bring your own everything that you want. Uh, if you want water, you want to bring food, whatever, chairs, that's, that's on you. We're just going to meet and gather and have a good time. So I just wanted to throw that out there real quickly. Uh, let's jump in this morning. We're going to continue our um, series on Esther and... Um, I'm excited about this morning. Good stuff to talk about. Exciting things to talk about. Hopefully encouraging. And based on what we just experienced in worship and uh, the prayer time, this is just going right along with it. So let's look at Esther chapter 5, starting in verse 9. It says, Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. He had just left a banquet with the king and the queen. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear... In his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Okay, so uh, Haman is the villain of this story, right? And he has just been to a banquet with the king and the queen. All right, everything in his world is going really well. All right, he should be on cloud nine. But what happens is he's going home and he sees Mordecai Right? And Mordecai is still not bowing down to him. And more importantly, he is not showing him fear. All right? Mordecai is still not fearful of Haman. And because of that, everything that Haman has going good for him in his life doesn't matter. He's filled with rage. It says he's filled with rage against Mordecai. And there's all sorts of illustrations that we're going to get to today. And this is the very first one. And I want us to understand this. The reason that Haman is filled with rage against Mordecai is because the enemy, y'all, operates in fear. Fear is the enemy's platform with which he does everything. And when we don't play the enemy's game, it makes him furious. But it is a helpless rage. Right? It is a rage that he can't do anything with. Because if we're not walking in fear, then, then the enemy's platform is totally wiped out from underneath him. And he has no leg to stand on. So he's mad, but he can't do anything about it. All right? He's mad and he can't do anything about it. And Mordecai is not going to play this game. What he's saying is, look, you might have sent out this edict. I might have the date of our entire people on the calendar, that day of demise, and I'm still not going to be afraid of you. Because if you go back and you listen to, and we read Mordecai's conversation with Esther that we talked about already, he says, listen, God is going to save us. All right? God is going to save us. But perhaps he has put you in this place for such a time as this. Remember that? And so it's already been determined in Mordecai's heart that they are going to be okay. He is choosing, listen carefully, y'all, Mordecai is choosing to trust in who God is more than believing the lies of the enemy. And by doing so, he's not afraid. All right? And by doing so, he is not afraid. And so when it comes to us, when we get to that place, that line where we can be afraid and we cross that line, we have to ask ourselves, am I going to believe the lie of the enemy or am I going to believe in who God says he is? That's an easy choice. We know who God is. We know he is the truth. We know he doesn't lie. He proves it over and over again, but we have to come to that line and make that decision. And Mordecai does. Even when the edict is out there, even when he can look on the calendar and say, this is when they're going to try and kill me and every single Jew in all of Persia, I am going to choose to believe that God is who he says he is. And so when the enemy comes by on my path, guess what? I'm not going to be afraid. 
And what does the enemy do? He's filled with rage. Isn't that hilarious that Haman is the one filled with rage? He should be like, I'm good. You can, you can not be afraid of me all you want, but the edict's out. And he's not because Mordecai doesn't play his game. The enemy can say and try and do all he wants to us. But if we don't play his game, he's the one that's filled with rage. He's the one that is angry. And we get to sit here and say, I trust the Lord. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. Listen to these words right here, though. But all this gives me no satisfaction. As long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate, his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, that's about 75 feet tall, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. So what they're saying is like, look, if you're this powerful guy, if you're the second in command of all of Persia, instead of complaining to us, how about you do something about it, right? Build a gallows, build a pole and impale him on it, and then go about your day. But stop coming here and complaining to us. But here, there's, there's a greater lesson in here. And I want to go, go back and look at thir- uh, verse 15. No, sorry, verse 13. But all this gives me no satisfaction. All the wealth, all the honor, right? His job, his rank, all of his family, all the sons that he has, no satisfaction. Why? Because he hates Mordecai. Hatred will rob you of all the joy that you should have in your life. He has everything. On paper, Haman has everything. But he also has hatred for one person. And the Bible says that it gives him no, he, out of his own mouth, says that he has no satisfaction whatsoever. If you are the second most powerful person in the greatest empire in the world, with all the wealth that comes with it, all the power, all the prestige, and you don't have satisfaction, chances are us, or me, <laughs> who doesn't have much, right? I'm definitely not going to have any satisfaction if I have hatred in my heart. Hatred, listen y'all, robs you. It doesn't rob the person that you hate. It robs you. I've heard it said unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Yeah. Right? That's what hatred does for us. And I believe that there, there's some of us in here that are battling, I'm talking about real hatred in your life. Hatred that is, that is kind of festering and you, you, you can't get rid of it. Whether it's hatred towards an ex-husband or an ex-wife or maybe to your, your parents, or someone close to you did something, and there is, there is this hatred in there. And as you go about life, you, you, you're just finding that you're not satisfied with things that you should be satisfied with anymore, and you're wondering why. It's because there's hatred. There needs to be forgiveness. How does that happen? Does it happen right in this moment? We can certainly pray for that. But it might be a process we have to forgive every single day. Does that mean you become best friends with those people and have this grand reunion? No. 
Does it mean that you trust them the way that you did before? Definitely not. Well, what it means is you let go of that hatred towards that person so that you can find satisfaction again in the things that God is trying to bless you with. Here's what I also find really interesting and things that we need to understand about those that we hate. The enemy hates your enemy as much as he hates you. Have you ever thought about that? The enemy hates your enemy as much as he hates you. The enemy hates Haman. I think the enemy loves that Haman has no satisfaction because of Mordecai. It's like he's pitting the two against each other, trying to kill both of them. The second the enemy is done using someone, he's done with them. He wants them dead. He wants them destroyed. As, as, as long as you are not a tool for the enemy, he hates you. And I believe while you're being a tool, he still hates you. He's laughing at Haman. You've got all this stuff and you're not satisfied. Ha! He hates Haman. And Haman's supposed to be the villain. The devil hates your enemy as much as he hates you. And that's, I think, where we can find the, the courage to pray for those people. To understand that really we're all in the same boat. The devil wants to destroy all of us. And here's, what it, here, here's the big difference. Where the enemy hates us and uses us for his own purposes... God loves us, allows us to be used by him when he doesn't need us because he loves us. It's a huge difference there. Haman has no satisfaction because of the hatred in his heart towards one man. And he's robbed of everything that he's supposedly bragging about here to his wife and to his friends. Right, so now we're going to turn the page to Esther chapter 6. And for, for this story, up until this moment, things have been kind of like, it's been a hard study, right? I've been challenged, a lot of kind of bad things happening in this story. But in chapter 6, things get good, all right? And that's what I'm excited about today. We get to talk, talk about some good things, right? But let's remember this. Let's preface this entire thing, uh, this entire sermon this morning with this. Things get good because Esther was obedient. All right, things don't get good in, t in this story until Esther is obedient, like we talked about last week. If you missed last week's sermon, you can go online or on our app and watch it, but I encourage you to do so because this is what it comes down to. This is the fruit of her obedience right here, beginning in chapter 6, verse 1. It says, That night the king could not sleep. So the same night that Haman has the pole set up to kill Mordecai, that same night the king couldn't sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. All right, if you remember all the way back in chapter 2, we find Mordecai saving the king's life. And that's towards the end of the chapter. Mordecai exposes this plot to assassinate the king. He tells Esther. Esther tells the king. It turns out it's true. The king has the two uh, would-be assassins killed. End of chapter. Chapter 3 begins, After these events, Haman is promoted, the villain. And we talked about how in those moments in, in our own lives, right, we're, we're trying to follow after the Lord. We're trying to do all the good things. And it seems like all these evil people are just passing us by, right? And the Bible's full of these comments where it's like, God, why do the evil people prosper? Why are they so happy? It's, it's, in, it's all over the Bible. And we talked about how in those moments we can just scream, that's not fair. 
God, it's not fair. It's not fair that I've done all this good and all these bad people are the ones getting promoted. And it can be really hard. We also talked about how when no one else sees, God sees. God sees. And and with that, his timing is perfect. His timing is perfect. And so when we're doing the right thing, we can say, God, what are you doing? I'm going to go seek my own blessing. Or we can trust him. Philippians 4, it says that he will meet all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Not my glorious riches, his glorious riches. I don't know about y'all, but I want God's glorious riches over my life, not my own. And when we get out of his timing and we say, God, I've done everything right and I'm not getting honored, so I'm gonna go find my own honor, we are robbing ourselves of God's glorious riches on us. Let me tell you something. The riches of Elon Musk are like lint in God's pocket compared to his riches. That's the truth. That's the, if, if, if the, Bible, the Bible says that the earth is God's footstool, if all the riches are, are God's footstool, how much riches does God have, y'all? And he says, I will meet your needs according to my glorious riches. So you just hold tight. I got something good coming for you. The king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. Yeah. Listen, I like that y'all are laughing because God has a sense of humor. All right. God does have a sense of humor. I believe that. I, I'm tangent for a second. Um, I, I really often wonder, you know, what the dynamic was like when Jesus was with his disciples and they're traveling, you know, usually by foot from town to town doing ministry. And those in-between that we don't read about, you know, in the word, the, those the times around the campfire, whatever, where they're talking. And, you know, listen, these disciples, they were all a work in progress just like us. And I believe that there were some times when Peter or James or one of them maybe said a joke that wasn't exactly up to the Son of God's standards, Right? And I wonder in those moments, like parents, you know what I'm talking about? Like when your kid uh, does or says something funny, well, it's not funny, but you, you laugh, right? It's like, don't ever do that. You know, you know what I'm saying? I wonder if that's what Jesus was like in those moments. Like, you know, don't, you know, try and not to laugh while rebuking them. But, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But I wonder, but God does have a sense of humor. And we see that here. Who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, don't you just know, don't you just know that Haman just had to think, well, it must be me, right? Sure, Persia is the greatest empire in the world. There's only 127 provinces. But surely the only person that the king could possibly want to honor is me, right? Because the enemy is insanely prideful. Esther's qualities, hopefully y'all are getting these by now, humility, teachability, strength, and courage. 
Well, the enemy's attribute is pride, which leads to blindness and it leads to hatred. All right? Haman is blind to the fact that there could possibly be anyone else in the entire kingdom that the king would want to honor. It has to be me. And pride leads to hatred because, for instance, Mordecai, who doesn't look at Haman the way that Haman looks at Haman, it turns to hatred, right? It turns to hatred. And when we don't look at the enemy the way the enemy wants us to, when we don't play that game of fear, when we don't believe that he has power over us, and we don't hover and quake at the enemy, he hates us. Because he's so prideful, he thinks that we should equate him to God in heaven. And we don't play that game. So the enemy hates us because of pride. Verse 6, Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king. And these words that he's about to say, he's answering with the understanding that this is what I want for me. So that's his mentality. This is what I want. For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe. The king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. What, what is Haman asking here, y'all? He's, he's, he's being quite obvious, saying, I want to be king. I want to ride your horse. I want to, I want to uh, have your robe. I want the ring. And I want to be shouted about throughout the whole city that this is what the king does to the man he delights to honor. I want to be king. Yikes. And he's bold about it. Hmm. Verse 10. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Now, when we began this series, I opened and kind of introduced the story of Esther by saying, I, I believe the story of Esther could be a play. I, like, I can picture this on Broadway or even a movie, right? And I, when, when I read this, this is the part of the movie, y'all, bear with me here, where things slow down. All right, things slow down. If we go back to verse 10, where it says, Do it, uh, just as you have suggested, it goes like this, for, the, for Mordecai the Jew, right? And, and the camera zooms in and says it like four times, like the Jew, the Jew, the Jew. Right? You know what I'm talking about in those movies? Like that's what I feel like is happening in the mind of Haman here. And then the camera cuts to Haman and it's just like, all right, punch to the gut. I mean, he didn't need, king didn't need to say, if he had just said Mordecai, like that would have been bad enough. But the king's got to say Mordecai the Jew, right? This is awesome, right? And so then, <laughs> and so then he's got he's to take this horse 
And just, I mean, and you know that you know that you know. Listen, people haven't changed, y'all. People are the same. The people in that city know exactly how Haman feels about Mordecai. And they're like, ah! <laughs> ah! Right? Burn! Right? That is a Burn! Sometimes I feel like God just lets the enemy play like a cat with a ball of yarn, you know? Like, sure, whatever, dude. I don't know. Verse 7, instead of your shame... Oh, wait, oh, listen. Oh, sorry, I got off track. Um, Since this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. The king delights to honor Mordecai. Let's stop and pause that for a second. The king wants to honor Mordecai, our king, the king of kings, he delights to honor us. He wants to honor us and bless us and give us good things. I think we forget that sometimes. Like we walk around in this lowliness of, you know, just trying to survive when really the truth is our God is a good father and wants to give us good gifts. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 61, verses 7 and 10. Instead of your shame you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. Kind of sounds like being paraded around a city, right? I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. This is God. This is God. He wants to give us a double portion, not disgrace, not disgrace, but a double portion over our lives. He delights to honor us in where just a couple days ago, Mordecai was dressed in, in torn clothes and ash on his head. Now he's being paraded around in the king's robe, in the king's horse. How much more so if Xerxes wants to bless Mordecai? How much more so God with us? Where instead of Xerxes' robe and his horse, he's saying, I'm going to clothe you in a robe of salvation and in a garment of righteousness. I'm going to give you a double portion. This is our God, y'all. If, if we will wait and obey him, if we will trust in his timing, if we will not operate and play that game of fear that the enemy tries to bring into our lives. God's saying, I'm going to give you a double portion. You are not going to be disgraced. I have seen you. I have not forgotten you. It looks like the evil people are going past you in life. But I'm telling you right now, a double portion is waiting for you. It is because of my glorious riches that I'm going to give you. Not your own. Not the world's. Not the person next to you. This is our God. I love Mordecai's reaction here in verse 12. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. It's like, cool, thanks. I'm going to go back to my post. Like that was, he's not even looking for it. 
He's not even looking for this big, huge celebration. He just goes back to where he was before, but not Haman. Not Haman. Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief, verse 13, and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His, his advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Now, let's just go back really quickly and let me see if I can find it in my notes. Um, when, when Haman first is talking to his friends and his wife, he's, he calls Mordecai that Jew Mordecai, right? So he announces to his friends and his wife that Mordecai is a Jew. So it's, it's known, right? But then here in the second conversation with them, they tell him, because he is of Jewish origin, this will be your downfall and you can't stand against him. Okay, if I'm Haman in this moment, to quote the wedding singer, I'd say, something that could have been brought to my attention yesterday, right? I told you he was a Jew yesterday. Why didn't you tell me that he was, this was going to be my downfall? Why'd you tell me to build this pole? I'm starting to get the picture that no one really likes Haman, right? I don't think that they do. I mean, I'm sitting there like, wife? <laughs> Hello? Why didn't you tell me this yesterday? Why'd you tell me to build the pole? Told you he was a Jew then. Doesn't make any sense. And as, as, listen to their words. Listen to what his advisors and his wife say. You cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin, right? That's what they say. In the, and then it says this in the very next verse, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet that Esther had prepared. So he's, his head is swirling in this moment. Like, what? I'm going to come to ruin over this guy? And then before he can even think, he's rushed off to a banquet. I mean, things are moving fast for Haman right now. Things are spinning out of control for him. And I am here for it. Chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked Esther, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. So this is now the third time. This is the third time that Xerxes has said this to Esther. Whatever you want, besides being king, the answer is yes. Finally, she answers. She's gotten the green light from the Lord. It's time to move. Verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress will justify disturbing the king. Wait a second. This has to confuse the king a little bit, don't you think? Yeah. You're asking for your life? I thought you were going to want a new car or something, right? <laughs> like, this doesn't make any sense. You're the queen. Who is trying to take your life and your people? What are you talking about? I just told you you can have everything and you're just asking to live. Like, who's... Well, verse 5. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, 
Who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. All right. There is a shift in the king right now. Up until this point, the king has surrendered his authority. He's given his authority away. He's let other people make decisions for himself. He has not acted like the king. Where God never gives his authority away. God never doesn't act like the king. He's always the king. He is always on the throne. For the first time in this story, Xerxes is acting like the king. Why? Because someone is coming after his bride. Because someone is threatening his bride's life. And what does he say? Who is he? And even more importantly, where is he? I want to find this dude that's trying to kill my wife. Listen, y'all, we need to understand something. When the enemy comes after his bride, who's the bride? The church. Who's the church? Us, right? When the enemy comes after the king's bride, there will be hell to pay. Do you think God is going to just sit idly by and let the enemy try and destroy his bride? If Xerxes is this mad, how much more so God? Do not think for a second that God is just sitting by going, well, whatever. No way. We are his bride, y'all. We are his bride. Listen, I know I'm not a big dude. All right. Shocker. Okay. (laughs) This just in. But if someone comes after Jesse... It's going to be on. And I might have to call a couple of my buddies. Help me out. Alan's got my back, right? Mike, come on. Let's go. When the enemy comes after God's bride, don't you think that upsets God? He's going, "Uh uh-uh. Judgment cometh. All right? And it's about to come. For Haman right here. Because the king is acting in his authority. Esther said, remember, Esther is humble and teachable, but she is also strong and courageous. Here she goes. Do your thing, Esther. (laughs) Esther said, an adversary and enemy. This vile Haman. Right? This vile Haman. That's when in the movie, the camera swerves to Haman, right? And he's, all right. It's done. The clock is about to strike midnight. His fun is over. Nice run, homie. It's done. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, y'all. If you know anything about the king, he don't go far without his wine. Oh, he must be mad. He's like, I got to leave my wine. (laughs) Xerxes is, is upset. He left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Mm. So now we have the enemy groveling at the feet of a Jew. 
Listen, y'all, when the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, it means that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This is the villain of the story, and he is on his knees to the very people that he was trying to annihilate, saying, please don't kill me, please, begging for his life. He already knew his time was up. It says that he already knew the king, what the king was going to do. He was going to die. So let me go and beg the queen for my life. Just as the king, here's some more of God's sense of humor. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. I love that she's reclining, by the way. It's like, I'm chill. I'm good. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. So not only has Haman been exposed, but now the king actually thinks that he's trying to rape his wife. Man, God's good. And then it says this, as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. So as Xerxes is finishing that sentence, his guys come up from behind and just, they put that bag over Haman's face. Before the words even finish coming out of Xerxes' mouth, boom, judgment. Telling us what? When judgment comes for Satan, he is not going to get his day in court. He's not going to be able to try and make up some excuse and make up some reasoning or say, well, wait, 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 shut up. Boom. Judgment comes. The bag goes over his head as God is speaking. Don't mess with my bride. Judgment is coming for the enemy. Then it goes on to say, this is probably my favorite part of the entire story of Esther. And I'll explain why in just a second. Verse 9, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Do you all know that in this moment, when he says impale him on it, that is the first time that Xerxes makes a decision without consulting anybody else? Up until this point, everything that he's decided, he said, well, what do you all think I should do? How should I honor the king? How should, what should I do with Vashti? What about this? How should I find a new queen? Everything is he's consulting these other people because he can't make a decision for himself. But when judgment comes and the enemy's trying to come after his bride, he goes, I know exactly what to do. Hang him on it. But that's not my favorite part of the story. My favorite part of the story is, is my boy Harbona. All right? Because here is Haman, right? He's got this bag over his head. And we don't know who Harbona is. Like we've never, this is the first time. And the dude just comes out of the shadows like, hey, by the way, uh... He built a pole to hang Mordecai uh, that he's going to kill, and Mordecai tried to save your life. And then he just kind of goes back, right? <sighs> I mean, people hate Haman. It is clear that people hate Haman. No one's asking, like, what's going on with that piece? He's like, hey, by the way, king, I'm just going to let that sit there with you. <clears throat> you decide what you want to do. But he was going to kill him, and he saved you, and he built it himself. So if you want to connect the dots, <sighs> and pay him on. I like Harbona. <laughs> I bet they're snickering, you know, back there. <laughs> um, I hate that dude. 
Listen, people, people, I mean, people haven't changed, y'all. Harbona, like, my man, I love it. Impale him on it. The king has made his decision, and he didn't need to consult with anybody because judgment came, because the enemy was coming after the king's bride. Listen, y'all, listen. God has not forgotten any one of us. Not a single one of you has God forgotten about. And he, he loves you so much. And I'm telling you right now, when the enemy tries to mess with you, it does not sit right with our king. There will be hell to pay for the enemy. I'm the band come back up and we're gonna close with some worship uh, this morning and communion. And the interesting thing here about this story is that Haman built the weapon for his own demise, right? Listen, so did Satan. He built the cross and in his pride, and in his pride, he thought the cross was gonna bring him victory. Just like Haman building those gallows, he thought killing Mordecai was gonna give him satisfaction. When really what he was doing was building the weapon for his own demise. The devil actually thought with Jesus humbly staying on the cross that he had won. He thought he had won. But really all he was doing, all he was doing was building the weapon for his own demise. God's timing in all of this is perfect because Esther was obedient It allowed Haman to build the gallows. Because Esther was obedient, it gave time for the king to not be able to sleep. Because Esther was obedient, it redefined the king's relationship with Mordecai. All these things had to be played out first because God's timing and God's ways are perfect. His ways are perfect and he will He will, he will supply all of our needs according to his glorious riches. Listen, these two chapters that we read today, they are rich. They are good. They're his glorious riches. I can say for certainty that if it was up to us, we would not have a story written this perfectly. Because our ways are not his ways. And our riches are not God's riches. But if you are going through it, if you are going through it, you need to understand that you are the Lord's. You are the Lord's. And as we celebrate communion this morning, as we remember the fact that Jesus didn't stay on the cross because he was nailed to it. He stayed on the cross because he chose to stay on the cross. The Bible says that he gave up his spirit. It was never taken from him. But he did so because he was saving a people when all the while the enemy thought he was killing people. But that cross, that sacrifice of Jesus, that moment that the devil thought he had was the weapon of his own demise. And he has no authority, no authority at all over any one of us. The second that we turn our lives over to Jesus and we join that bride, 
All the fear that the enemy tries to use against us is out the window. It's out the window. Because the cross is the weapon of the enemy's demise. It is God's greatest victory. He said, you thought you won? Are you serious? You thought you won. All you did was save my people for eternity. And set them free so that we never have to walk in fear again. We can, we can come to those moments in our life where fear creeps in its way and say, I am not playing that game. I am not playing that game. And we can know that as we say that, as we confess that in the boldness that we have as sons and daughters of the living God, that it enrages the enemy with a helpless rage. He can't do anything about it. Judgment is coming for the enemy. It's coming, y'all. But it's in God's timing and in his way. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And he proved it when he stayed on the cross for us so that we can walk in these truths. He is for us. He is not against us. And he is here to protect us from every attack of the enemy. All we have to do is believe never have believed, now is the time. Say, Lord, I believe that you saved me and that you died on the cross because you love me, because you want to protect me and provide for me, even when life looks so bleak and it feels like it couldn't get any worse. I know that you have my back and that you will save me. Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who defends his bride. You are a God who loves his bride. And then when the enemy tries to come at us, it does not sit well with you. It does not sit well with you. Remind us of that today when fear tries to come in, rob us, steal from us, cause anxiety and stress, unrest. God, that we would remember that that's not a game that we have to play. Even when the edict has been sent, everything looks like we're done. We can say, no, my God says this, and not walk in fear. God, we thank you that what the enemy created, the cross that you were hung on, he thought was his greatest victory, ended up being the very weapon of his own demise. The cross that he thought was going to kill the people actually built a kingdom. God, thank you that we can look to the cross and we can know that our Jesus humbly stayed so that we could have a relationship with you, so that we could walk with you, Lord, every single day in peace, God, that you are our God. And everything that you say about yourself and everything that you say about us is true because you proved it. You proved it, Lord. God, we thank you. We, just, we take the bread right now, Lord, and we say thank you for the sacrifice that you made, for the, the beating that you took, ripping of your flesh, God, the 
mockery, the spitting at, the nails in your arms and legs, the suffocation, Lord, that even as the wind gently blew, it sent pain up and down your body, you never left. You humbly laid down your life. Thank you, Jesus, for staying so that we could have victory in you, so that the cross would become the weapon of the enemy's demise. Let's take the bread right now in remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice. Father, we thank you for your blood that was poured out on the cross. Perfect, spotless blood. There was not a drip of sin in it, Lord. You were perfect. And it's that blood that washes us new every single day. So God, when we, when we forget and we walk in fear or we, we get out of obedience because we're frustrated and waiting on your timing or we doubt you, Lord, we whatever it might be, we stumble and fall in whatever way that is in our own life, we can remember your blood that was poured out for us and run to you, not run away from you, but run towards you and ask forgiveness and you wash us clean. Every single day, your word says your mercy is new every morning. God, we thank you for that. And your mercy is new every morning. Yes, Lord, indeed, you'll meet all of our needs according to your glorious riches. What is more rich than the blood of our Savior? Thank you, Jesus. Wash us clean even now, Lord. Wash us clean even now by the blood of your Lamb. Let's take the cup.